0: Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews 6, we're looking at verse 13 to 20 this morning, and let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we do hold fast to the anchor of Jesus Christ. We cling to our hope that is in him. And Heavenly Father, even this morning as we confess that we are also confessing our own unworthiness, our own ability to save ourselves, we confess you and you alone. Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are sinful. We know our own hearts, and I'm sure that the testimony of almost every one of us in here this morning would confess that we are the worst of sinners. We know what we deserve, because we know who we are. And yet we rejoice in the hope of Jesus Christ, the anchor for our soul. Heavenly Father, maybe I pray that even this morning as we turn our attention to this passage, may we see that anchor. May we rejoice in the hope that we have that you would be honored in all that we say and do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In Matthew 7, Verses 24 to 27, there's a a famous parable. In this parable, Jesus compares those who hear and believe his word with those who hear but choose to ignore his word. He famously, in this parable, compares uh, them to a wise man and a foolish, a wise builder and a foolish builder. You know the story. In fact, even as I say that, you might have the song going through your mind. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house on the shore and the solid foundation of rock. But the foolish man in this parable, the foolish man who ignores Jesus' word, where does he build his house? It's on the sand, on the unstable, constantly shifting foundation of sand. And the power the power of the parable is in the universal recognition of the foolishness of building on an unstable foundation. What would be the point? Why invest the time, the effort, the the finances into building on a foundation that can give way at any time? Who would persevere in building when each day as you show up, you have to fix everything that went wrong overnight? You have to essentially start over. And even as you stand there and you look at it, you can feel the sand shifting beneath your feet. How foolish would it be to persevere in building? In our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews assures his readers that the foundation on which they are building their lives is a sure foundation. This is a solid rock. I think a little context is good to to help us remember where we are in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 5, verses 11 to 14, a few weeks ago, as the author of Hebrews, uh, in in that passage, shifts his attention from the topic at hand... You might remember he's talking about Jesus Christ and he's talking about his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and yet in that passage he has to pause. And why does he have to pause? Well, if you remember, he pauses to rebuke his audience. He rebukes them for their failure. I have a lot to say about this, but you can't understand it. You're too immature. He rebukes them for their failure to grow in the Christian life. They are stagnant, and they are in danger of falling away and revealing that they never truly believed to begin with. Yet in that passage, though he's disappointed with their lack of growth, he assures them that he does see fruit of faith in them. I, I see evidence of salvation, but I am disappointed at your lack of growth. So he calls them to maturity in Christ. Then two weeks ago, in Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 12, having addressed the immaturity of his audience and their need to grow, he then encourages them to not give up in that growth. Don't just get started and then stop again. But be diligent. Be diligent in your growth. It is a call to faithfulness. So in the two passages leading up to this, we have a call to, to, to Christian growth, and then a call to continue in that growth. A call to faithfulness. And so this morning as we come to Hebrews 6, 13-20, it builds on these two. It builds on the call to maturity in Hebrews 5, 11-14 and then on the call to diligence in Hebrews 6, 1-12 by assuring his readers of the faithfulness of God and therefore the surety of their hope. The faithful life is not a wasted life but it is a life that is built on the surest of foundations so this morning in this passage, we'll see a call to be patient, to be encouraged, and to be steadfast. First thing we see is a call to be patient. Starts here with God's oath in verses 13 to 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. Very clearly here at the very beginning is a reference back to God's promise to Abraham, the the Abrahamic covenant. We find it in Genesis 12. The first several verses of Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country. From your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. This is the Abrahamic covenant. A promise that God brings to Abraham. If you follow me, I will bless you. I will give you a people. A people. I will give you a land and I will bless you." This Abrahamic covenant is then built upon, it's referenced several times. The first reference is there in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Again, God references it in chapter 13, verses 14 to 17, chapter 15 of Genesis, verses 1 to 21, Genesis 17 verses 1 to 19, and then Genesis 22 verses 15 to 18. In fact, it's that reference, that last one, Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18, that's specifically referenced in our passage. And in that passage of Genesis 22, this comes right after Abraham has offered his son on the altar. And then God reassures him of his promise. And it says here that he he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself. God made a promise to Abraham. This Abrahamic covenant, I will bless you. I will give you a land, a seed. And because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. In this Abrahamic covenant, God makes a promise. And the foundation of that promise, the guarantee of that promise, is God's own faithfulness. If you were to pull out a $20 bill and go to Hy-Vee or any other store, you pull out a $20 bill. What makes that $20 worth $20? Is it just your word? I promise this is worth $20. Can anyone just take a piece of paper and write $20 on it? And then it's $20? Could you use $20 of coal cash? coal's cash? <laughs> What makes $20 worth $20? It's not your word. Your $20 is worth $20 because, not because you say that it is, but because the U.S. government says that it is. Across the top of your $20 bill it says Federal Reserve Note. There's a stamp on it from the Federal Reserve authenticating it and there's a note that clarifies this note is legal tender for all debts public and private. So if someone were to question the worth of your $20 you would not appeal to your own trustworthiness. But to something greater than yourself, you would appeal to the U.S. government that backs up your bill. They say that it's worth twenty dollars. When brothers and sisters, there is no one and there is nothing greater for God to appeal to. He swears by himself because there is no one greater to swear by. God's word is backed up by God's character. He swore by himself. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Again, that's a reference specifically to Genesis 22, 15 to 18. And here we see Abraham's patience. So, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. See, in Genesis 22, 15 to 18, as I mentioned, this is as Abraham uh, has just offered his son. And God provided a ram. And the remarkable thing about this passage is that in Genesis 12, 1 to 4, when God first comes to Abraham and calls him to follow. Abraham is 75 years old. It's at 75 years old that Abraham packs up and leaves everything behind, believing God. At 75 years old, God comes and God says, I will give you a son, and I will give you land, and I will give you a blessing. Even at 75 years old, that must have been a somewhat shocking thing to hear. We often jump to the fact that Abraham was 100 when his son was born. That is shocking. But the promise was first given at 75. Abraham had to wait 25 years between when God promised that he'd give him a son at 75 to when God gave him a son at 100. He had to wait 25 years from Genesis 12-4 to Genesis 21-5 before he begins to see God fulfilling his promise of the birth of Isaac. That means that for 25 years, Abraham and Sarah followed God, childless, believing that he would still give them a seed beyond all hope. This was a hard promise to believe at 75. And it wasn't fulfilled at 76. 76 or 77 or 78 or 79 or 80 or 81 or 82 or 83 it was fulfilled at 100 During Abraham's lifetime he did not see all of God's promises fulfilled but he did see the beginning of all that God would do And so after he had patiently endured his patience Abraham's patience is both an example to us and a call to us to follow him in this patient, enduring faith. In fact, that's what faith is. True faith is patient faith. Faith is not only recognizing and believing in God's ability, but faith also submits to God's timeline. It waits on God. And the author Hebrews here is calling his audience to not lose faith. Grow. Be diligent in growth and be patient. Endure. Grow in grace and and diligently grow and do not lose hope or faith but cling to the promises of God regardless of how much time it takes and regardless of the circumstances that you go through. Because God has made a promise. God is God regardless of my timeline and my circumstances, and God will keep his word. So I must faithfully follow him and I must patiently wait on him. Abraham here is put forth as the prime example of one who believed God and who patiently waited for 25 years, despite the increasingly improbable nature of the promise made to him, yet he endured. And what was his reward? What we see there in verse 15. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. He obtained the promise. Abraham obtained the promise. All that God had promised Abraham has come and will come to pass. And the point is simply this that Abraham trusted God to be faithful, and Abraham found God to be faithful. In fact, all of those who believe God will endure patiently in faith and all of those who endure patiently in faith will obtain the promise. You will find God to be faithful. It's from this example of Abraham. The author of Hebrews now moves on and he explains the objective truth behind this example. Or what does this 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 example that we see of Abraham's patience. What does this tell us about God? And then he moves on to the application of these truths to his audience. So now we come to verses 16 to 18. Be encouraged. What does this tell us about God? Why is it that God made an oath to begin with? Well, the answer is here given. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. Why is it that God made an oath? Well, why is it that men make oaths? The purpose of an oath is to confirm your word, it's to shut down all speculation or doubt. There's a popular game show when I was younger. My family and I would would watch every uh, time it would come on each week. It was called, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And the premise was that there was was three lifelines or helps. And the contestant had to work through uh, answering questions, working their way up to a million-dollar question. There are multiple-choice questions that he's working through with the chance to win a million dollars. One of the things that made the show so... Fascinating was the, the building tension with each question that's worth more money. You can, just, you can feel the weight of the questions. And each time a contestant would answer a question, the host would famously ask, is that your final answer? It's a question that was meant to ensure that the host had, had rightly understood what the contestant had answered and to confirm Beyond all doubt that this is your answer. It shuts down all debate and all opportunity to go back and say, well, that's not what I meant. You've confirmed it. In a similar vein, an oath gives a final stamp of approval. This is my word. I am telling the truth and I will not go back on it. Thus, in like manner, Hebrews 6.17 tells us that God made an oath with Abraham to show in a way that Abraham would understand how serious that he was. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, heirs of promise, those who, who received the promise from God, specifically in this case, we're still focused on Abraham and his seed who would come after him. So in order to show them more abundantly the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. Immutable. It's one of those words that we probably throw around a lot. We use it. We may not know necessarily what it means. You may have at one point knew what it means and several of you probably do know what it means. Immutable is simply a word that means unchanging or unchangeable. God made an oath to show Abraham and all of his seed that his counsel, that his word is unchanging. Unchanging. See, not only does the God fulfill his word, but he fulfills it exactly unchanged as he promised he would. There's no bait and switch where God makes a promise and then in a roundabout way, he kind of, he he sort of fulfills it. No, God does exactly what God says. When God makes a promise, God keeps the promise that he has made. He fulfills his promises as he made his promises. And God's word is backed up by God's character. God's word is immutable because God himself is immutable. He didn't make an oath because he needed to further confirm his word. He made an oath for the sake of Abraham and his seed that they would see his immutability. In fact, as you move to verse 18, that's exactly what we see. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. God's oath was not stronger than God's word. In fact, both God's oath and God's word are called immutable by two immutable things. What are those two things? It is God's word word originally when he spoke and then it is God's oath on top of that word. It is two things that cannot be changed. Two things that are immutable. God is simply stressing by two unchanging and unchangeable things how faithful that he is and therefore how sure Abraham's faith should be. In fact, in case you're not understanding what is going on here, the author of Hebrews simplifies the point that he's trying to make and he brings it down to one simple theological statement. What what are you saying here? Two immutable things. You're using big words. What are you saying? It is impossible for God to lie. That's what it all comes down to. God does all of this in order to show Abraham I am faithful and it is impossible for me to lie. That might kind of strike you as strange. How can it be impossible for God to do anything? In fact, we'd often answer the question, is there anything that God cannot do? We'd often answer it with, no, God can do everything. That's not an entirely true statement. There's a little uh, catechism that Chris and I work through with our kids. One of the questions is, can God do all things? And the answer in that catechism is yes. God can do all his holy will. Those last few words are important in there. God can do all his holy will. In fact, that's what we see in Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. You see, as Psalm 115 teaches, and as, as this little catechism that we go over with our kids affirms, God does all that he pleases, but he never contradicts his will or his character. God cannot lie because that would be contrary to his character, to who he is. He is not a liar. And that is good news for you and for me. That means that we are not merely at the whim of an all-powerful being who could change his mind tomorrow. We are the objects of love and the recipients of promise from an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, eternal, righteous, just, faithful, good, merciful, gracious, compassionate, long suffering, jealous, wise, immortal, incomparable, sovereign, and glorious God. And in that we rejoice that our God does not change and he cannot lie. And there's something else that I want to note in this passage before I move forward. A remarkable little fact that would be easy to overlook. (laughs) That not only does this passage reveal the the theological truth of God's faithfulness and the fact that he cannot change, but it also reveals his love. You see, God did not simply tell Abraham that he was faithful and then just expect Abraham to believe it. I am faithful and you will believe it. But God showed his faithfulness to Abraham and to his seed in a very specific way. In a way that they needed to see it so that they could believe him. He put it in terms that they would understand. So he made an oath, though he didn't have to. He didn't need to confirm his unchanging word with an unchanging oath. But he did so that Abraham would understand and believe. Think about that. God reached down to Abraham and he did it in a way that he would understand because he wanted him to see. He wanted him to believe. But it doesn't stop there. God not only wanted Abraham to understand and believe, he wants to encourage you As well. In fact, as you move to the end of verse 18, that's exactly what you see. By two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Notice the shift there. At that point in the verse, there's a change from talking about Abraham and his seed and the promises that God has made to them, he has showed their faithfulness to them, and now, what does that mean for us? God did all of that back then, not only so they would believe, so that we would believe. It's at this point that the passage moves from objective truth, showing through God's promise to Abraham who God is, to personal application to us. God has done all of this not only so that Abraham and his seed might believe and endure, but so that even we might have strong consolation. That word, strong consolation, is the idea of, of a strong and a sure encouragement that we have from God in Christ. He did all of this not just because he knew that's what Abraham needed to believe, he did all of this to encourage you in your faith. That you, today, looking at this passage, would look here and you would see this, what God did for Abraham, and you would say, That is my God, and he is faithful. And because he cannot lie and he kept his promises to Abraham, he will keep his promises to me. It's a promise for those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. It's kind of an illustration, fled for refuge, that, that the author of Hebrews doesn't build upon. But the word is used in the Old Testament of those who fled to sanctuary cities. The idea of those who are refugees. So in the picture here that the author of Hebrews is, is writing, those, this is that we might have strong consolation. We who have fled for refuge shall lay hold of the hope set before us. Christians here are viewed as refugees who have fled to God for deliverance. He is our sanctuary. This world is not our home. And its fate is not our fate, for we have believed, taking hold of the promises of God and the hope that is ours in Him. Hope here ties back to to Hebrews 6.11 where the author of Hebrews encourages his audience to endure in the full assurance of what? The full assurance of hope until the end. So now a few verses later, he's coming back to that idea of hope. This hope is ours. See God's faithfulness and the sure foundation on which your hope rests and cling to it, unwavering until the end. And so God's faithfulness to Abraham assures us of God's faithfulness to us. And it emboldens us to take serious God's promises. See that God is faithful and be steadfast. In fact, that's the next point, verses 19 to 20. Be steadfast. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. What is this hope? Hope's kind of a a general word. But clearly, he has a specific hope in mind. He says, this hope... Well, it's the hope for those of us who have fled for refuge, who have run to God. It's the hope that we lay hold of in Him. Specifically here, it's the hope of salvation. It's the hope that as Philippians 1.6 promises, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's the promise that God will complete in glorification what He began in justification and what He's currently doing in sanctification. It's the sure hope that God is doing in me what God says He is doing in me. It's the hope of salvation. And this hope, this salvation of which I have taken hold by faith is an anchor of the soul. And it is sure and it is steadfast. It's a hope that keeps us grounded in the ups and the downs of life. Where do I run when life doesn't make sense? I run to my salvation in Christ. I run to my identity in Christ. I run to my eternal security in Christ. And that is what I cling to. That is where my hope lies, not in this life. The death of a loved one, through the fear of financial troubles, through the frustration of relationships, through the confusion of, of politics and social media and the struggles of growing up or growing old, this hope keeps us grounded. It gives us direction. It informs our actions and our reactions. And it is sure and it is steadfast. Because the God in whom we hope, the God who has made the promise, is sure and steadfast. That's kind of where it comes full circle. My hope and salvation is sure because God, who made the promise, is sure. He is immutable, He cannot lie. There's another odd phrase here it's an anchor of the soul, but sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. The the enters there is, is tied back to the hope. My hope enters behind the veil. But then it connects it in the next verse, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. You see, your hope is not, not only gives us direction, but it gives us access. Your hope is not tied just to someone who is close to God. It's not tied to a priest who can move around in the the courtyard of the temple, but can't go in the Holy of Holies. Your hope goes straight into the presence of God. It is tied to God himself. We have access to the very presence of God and the hope that is ours in Christ. What does that mean? That means that while we cling to his promises, we have his ear. While we cling to his promises, he hears us, he knows us, he cares for us. He didn't make a promise and then, and then back away, leaving us to ourselves to figure it out, and then, you know, I'll see you when you die. He's involved in our lives. We have access, He's leading us. He knows you, and He is with you. His hope is directly tied to our forerunner, Jesus Christ. And it's here in verse 20 that the the author of Hebrews kind of circles back. Now he's getting back to his original point from which he had to break off in Hebrews 5.10. This is where he wanted to be. This is what he wanted to explain. But first he had to address the weaknesses of his audience. Now that he's done that, he's circling back. Why is it important for you to grow? Why is it important for you to to, uh, be diligent and growth? Because your hope is in Christ. And what does that mean? Well, it's in Jesus Christ who is in the presence of God, your high priest. In fact, going forward, he's going to spend time really diving deep into this. But his point here is this, that my hope is in the presence of God. And it's directly tied to my high priest who is in the presence of God, Jesus Christ. He'll build on that truth. Well, brothers and sisters, the, the big picture that he's getting at this morning is this. That it is not a shaky foundation on which you build your life. But it is the sure foundation of the immutable promises of your immutable, faithful God. So take serious your faith. Be diligent to your call. Be patient in faith. Be encouraged in hope. Be steadfast in Christ. This life will toss you around, but your anchor holds sure and steadfast. So be faithful and cling to that hope. Maybe even this morning as we're reading this passage, maybe you are going through something specific in life right now. Maybe, maybe even as we were discussing that anchor, that hold, maybe that was an encouragement to your soul because you are going through something in which life is tossing you around. In which you are tempted to think that, that maybe I don't have hope. Maybe God has lied. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. God cannot lie. He is faithful and therefore your hope is sure. Cling to your salvation. Your life is built on a sure foundation. Cling to your anchor. Maybe even as we close in just a second, we're going to close with the song, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place, number 389. Maybe even as we close, maybe you just need to pause and you need to sit at your seat or come to the front or or respond in some way. Maybe you just need to spend some time in prayer. God, I am struggling. I feel like I am tossed around. I don't know what you're doing. But I will cling to my anchor. Give me faith to trust. Give me strength to cling to you. Encourage my soul this morning, Father. Give me hope. Maybe this morning you're here. And maybe... Maybe you've never had that hope to begin with. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Christ alone. Maybe you are trying to cling to your work, saying, as long as I am good enough, as long as I, I, I just do the right thing, even though life is hard, then, then God will accept me. That's not what the Bible says. Your hope is not in your works. Your hope must be in Christ alone. He is your sure foundation. You're sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So if you've never placed your faith in Christ alone, even this morning as we sing, I would encourage you, come to the front and grab me. And I'd love nothing more than to take you out and we'll sit down and I will open a Bible and I will explain the hope that can be yours in Christ by faith alone. Someone else can close the service, don't worry, they'll figure it out. But if you have any questions, seek me out, even after the service, seek me out. And I'd love to sit down and open the Bible with you. Let's stand and be encouraged. Hymn number 389, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place.